Yeah, 1 Peter chapter 2, again, verses 4 to 9 is where we're going to be at today. As we, um, I want to talk to you today about, um, uh, I don't know, you're going to probably maybe think it's a little bit unusual, but it's, uh, I want to talk to you today about why the Jewish nation still rejects Jesus as the Messiah. We're talking about the resurrection, you know, we're looking at details of the resurrection, and right now I'm, um, we're talking about those um, getting ready to look at, at arguments against the re- resurrection that have been presented over the centuries uh, to try to disprove that Jesus came back to life. And we're beginning here today with his own country. And so, uh, why the Jewish nation still rejects Jesus as the Messiah. That's what we want to talk about today. So in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 9, Peter says, As you come to him, that is Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, it is the stone that builders rejected and has become, it has actually become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobeyed the message which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Peter is quoting the Old Testament here as he talks about the chief cornerstone, about Jesus being that cornerstone. And if you notice again down in verse 8, he said it's a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. And that has been so true. And matter of fact, that was what uh, uh, Simeon, remember, as he prophesied over Jesus when he was being dedicated at the temple, said that he would cause many people to fall. Amen. Well, historically, loved ones, the death of Jesus uh, upon the Roman cross isn't uh, denied by critics or opponents so much. You know, people, that's a fact. You know, that's a matter of historical record that Jesus died on the cross, that he was crucified, that he was crucified as a criminal. However, compared, uh, you know, that's not so much denied, but it compared to their refusal to believe the fact that of the resurrection from the dead in the empty tomb, uh, that is hugely denied, you know, because that's not a matter of historical record outside of the scriptures. It was this fact of the resurrection, you remember, that caused the Greek intellectuals on uh, Mars Hill to laugh at the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17. As soon as he started talking about the resurrection, then they, they stopped him and they began to laugh at him. We know when we think of Christmas time, we think of Christmas uh, as, a, as a joyous time of the Lord uh, sending us a Savior. It's surprising to us to realize that not everybody was happy about Jesus coming onto the scene back 2,000 years ago. His, his, his Messiahship to, uh, you know, was, uh, to his own people was really, was really controversial. 
Matter of fact, it says in uh, John chapter 1 verse 11, he came into his own, what? And his own received him not. And Jesus then said in Luke 4.24, as well as in Mark, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. So Jesus had this uh, experience that when he began his ministry, his own people rejected him. They didn't believe that he was who he claimed to be. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah. And when he went to his own hometown, you remember when he went to Nazareth, as he read the scriptures from Isaiah, talking about the Messiah, and he said, This day... The, this scripture is fulfilled in your, in your presence. They really, some of them liked that, but many of them got upset. And uh, he um, had to actually flee town because they, they wanted to throw him, throw him over the hill, throw him off of a cliff. This uh, last couple of weeks, the terrorist war of Hamas against the nation of Israel has placed Israel back in the global limelight. As I'm sure you've been hearing news every day about, uh, about the actions going on over there. Those uh, barbaric evil actions of Hamas on October 7th, which was, what, two weeks ago yesterday, they were really a dark historical moment for Israel, to, to be sure. They're now saying, you probably have heard this, that October 7th was the bloodiest day for Jews since the Holocaust. It's also being called Israel's 9-11 or Israel's Pearl Harbor. Those are things that we can identify with, and, that's, and, and those are things that Israel has actually said about themselves. It's our 9-11, it's our Pearl Harbor. Uh, the latest total that I could get, and these numbers, these numbers seem to keep changing, but the latest total is that 1,400 um, Jews or people in Israel, including 32 Americans, were slaughtered, with 203 children and adults kidnapped and being held hostage. Two have been released this, this last week, and total number killed on both sides of the war. Uh, right now, the conflict was 5,700. So, um, you know, um, nobody uh, uh, that I, in their right mind, would, would, uh, would not be grieved at what is going on over there and some of the atrocious things that have gone on, especially the, at the, on the initial, uh, initial day of the war back on October 7th. Um, so our hearts really sincerely go out to the families of those who have lost loved ones so tragically, so, so terribly. Um, it's hard for us to imagine what war is like right outside our house. It really is. I mean, you know, that's that uncertainty of missiles striking at any time or, you know, that's so, that's, we just don't, we can't fathom that. That's not a part of our experience. But the conflicts over the, that piece of real estate over there along the Mediterranean coast, uh, tell you, that has been, um, that has been uh, a difficult section of land for many thousands of years. And uh, um, our Western minds are, have a hard time comprehending how the Eastern mind thinks. And so we have a way of thinking about war and problems and, and how to solve them. And it's totally different than the way they, they think about life over, over there. Um, and that's why it's difficult to, to have our leaders go over and try to talk and try to uh, make peace. It's very, very difficult. Here are some of the st uh, current stat statistics for Israel today. And I thought you might find this interesting to just kind of know what the situation is right now in Israel, the condition of their country, just like we've talked about. We know the condition of our country, the, the moral condition of it. I thought this would be interesting for you to know also. Uh, of all the Jewish citizens in Israel, this is Jewish citizens, as of 2022, this is the latest, uh, latest statistics. 
45% identify as secular. So 45% of Jewish people in Israel consider themselves secular. They're not religious in any way, any way, shape, or form. Uh, they are strictly uh, secular with no religious devotion. 45%. 33% identify as traditional conservative. And in that, this is what that means. It means that they give a nod toward God. They don't necessarily, they, they believe that Jewish law and tradition has really been a part, has just really come up with, out of people's minds. It didn't come from God, it just was, came from people's minds. So they kind of give a nod toward God, but they're the conservative Jewish people. That's 33%. Um, 12% identify as Zionists, and they, they pair Jewish law and tradition um, with politics. So they, they're, they're the politically involved Jews there. They try to involve Jewish law and tr- tradition in their, in, their, in their politics. That's only 12%. 10%, that makes up the 100 then, 10% identify as what you call ultra-Orthodox. They're really strictly, they, the strict adherence to Jewish law and tradition. They're the ones you see at the, at the wailing wall doing this, you know, as they're, as they're praying. They have the long beards and the black hats and things of that nature. They, uh, so they're very strict. So you got 45% who are secular, 33% who are just traditional, uh, 12% that are Zionists, and 10% that are really strict uh, uh, Jews when it comes to the Jewish law and tradition. Here's some more facts for you. The second largest religion in Israel is Islam. 18% of the population follow um, is Islam. They're, they're, they're Muslims. Okay? Christianity is the third largest religion and that's made up of Greek Orthodox and Roman Catholic and other kind of Catholic churches and they only make up 1.9% of the population. And of that one, uh, well, uh, and Protestant churches or Protestant Christians, they are under, they, they actually um, are less than 1%. So that's the situation there. Yet, you know, 18% of the population are, are, are Muslims and only, well, almost 2% are what you would call Orthodox or Catholics and then less than 1% are Protestants. Um, however, hundreds of thousands of Protestants come to Israel every year as tourists. They go to the Holy Land. They, they do all the... Uh, t- tourism is a huge business there in, in Israel. Messianic Jews, the ones who uh, are looking for Jesus to come or who are following Jesus, they're, they're increasing. There's about 20,000 of them right now in is- Israel. Now let me give you some more information here just to help put everything in perspective. Uh, a couple informative side notes here that many are not aware of. The nation of Israel is very pro-abortion. Uh, they see abortion as a woman's right. After our Supreme Court last year uh, overturned Roe v. Wade, Israel saw this as a major attack against women and made abortion even easier for its female citizens. God has really not given much consideration in Israeli legislation. Israel also is the most pro-LGBTQ nation in the Middle East. It has been called the gay capital of the Middle East. 
They give recognition of marriage, equality, and adoption by same-sex couples. LGBTQ life in Israel is vibrant and a major part of their popular culture. Tel Aviv has become a major LGBTQ tourist destination after being named the number one gay city in the world by various travel and cultural magazines. Each year, the Tel Aviv Pride Parade is a raucous affair attended by 100,000 people, including 5,000 tourists. Tel Aviv's nightlife scene includes venues that cater to the LGBTQ crowd, and during the day, LGBTQ Israelis and tourists can hang out at two of Israel's known gay beaches. Even in Jerusalem, a city known for its conservative religious tendencies holds a pride parade each year, and it's also a home to the Jerusalem Open House for Pride and Tolerance. Israel's first public wedding between a man and a transgender woman was televised and celebrated across the nation. So to kind of give you an idea of the, mor- the moral condition of the nation of Israel, I thought it'd be, it's good for us to understand that just as God sends judgments upon America for our moral decisions, he's always sent judgments on every nation for their moral decisions, even the country of Israel. And even though, of course, we know that they reject the Messiah still, and we want to talk about that today, why they do. And, uh, but I thought it'd be good for us to understand the condition, the moral condition of the country of Israel right now. Um, God loves the Israeli people, amen? God loves the Palestinians, amen? God loves Hamas, amen? He does. He loves those terrorists. Doesn't love what they do, of course, but he loves them. Yeah. Sometimes uh, it's so easy for us to start taking sides. And yes, it's, it's, it's right for us to make statements about that was definitely wrong to do that. I mean, you know, and it's barbaric. And yeah, there needs to be, needs to be a, a, you know, a nation has the right to defend itself. And you know, all those things, we, you know, we support those things. But sometimes it's so easy for us as Christians to all of a sudden start getting vague on the, on the idea that, that God still loves the Palestinians. <laughs> you know, that, and that Israel's not perfect like us that morally it was very corrupt when it comes to God's righteousness and His holiness just as America is in the same boat you know as well as many other nations and that God you know God allows us to exist and repent and He's looking for us to repent but if we don't then He has to send judgment as we know from the scriptures teach us very plainly that He does send those judgments so, God's concern for all the nations on, on the earth and their, and, their, and their righteousness and their salvation. So, we can see the Israel of today is vastly different than the Israel of Jesus' day. As we continue to look into this, the bedrock of our faith here in Jesus through the cross, uh, through the cross and the empty tomb, you may, you, uh, you may have wondered before, exactly why did the Jews reject Christianity so ardently? 2,000 years ago and uh, you know and still so you know vehemently uh, continue um, to, to reject Christ now um, as the Messiah um, after he so clearly it just seems makes so much sense he so clearly fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies I mean it's just so clear that he fulfilled those 
You know, we'd have to conclude that if Jesus isn't the Messiah, I mean, we'd have to conclude this, that if Jesus isn't the Messiah, there's not going to be one because it was so clear, it was so accurate uh, that Jesus fulfilled all those prophecies in the Old Testament. We'd have to conclude that. But the Jews just don't see it that way. Modern day Israel doesn't see it that way either. I mean, it's those people who are, who are you know, religious Jews. Um, they, don't, they don't understand it that way. Um, popular speaker, uh, conservative speaker, Ben Shapiro, uh, is an Orthodox Jew, a very serious, devout Jew, who uh, is on record in a conversation with Joe Rogan as saying this, that Jews do not believe Jesus was divine or even a prophet, but rather just a Jew who tried to lead a revolt against the Romans and got killed for his trouble. That was from, that's unquote there, from Ben Shapiro. So why do Jews today reject Jesus as Messiah? It just boils down to this same issue that Jesus faced when he uh, was ministering in that Jewish nation uh, for three and a half years. <clears throat> The Jewish population, again, they were looking for a Messiah, to be sure, who would enable Israel to militarily and politically conquer Rome and restore Israel to as an independent supernation, really superior to all nations. And this, this expectation was just huge. Can you say huge with me? It was huge. <laughs> it was just huge. Well, that's what Jesus faced. I didn't realize how huge it was until you really start scouring the Gospels and looking at, at how Jesus was confronted over and over again with this expectation that he was supposed to be a political king. He was supposed to be leading Israel. If he really was a, you know, the Messiah, he was supposed to be leading Israel to conquer the Romans. It was really a big deal. And not only within the general population, it was a huge roadblock for his disciples. And we're going to look at some examples of that today just to show you how big a deal this, it, this was and still is. It still is a big deal. Um, disciples, they had been raised in synagogue, you know. They, they knew the prophecies about the Messiah. They had been taught and conditioned by the local rabbis, the spiritual leaders, how to interpret those Old Testament scriptures and prophecies. And for years and years, the Jewish scholars and the ones of Jesus' day, they just couldn't reconcile the prophecies. Uh, there was two different categories of prophecies about the Messiah. And they really struggled in reconciling these two categories. And you, I know you've heard this before, but just help, I, I hope we can put this in perspective today, that one category seemed to depict the, this coming Messiah as somebody who was going to suffer. And it, in fact, it, was talk, it talked about being a servant to Israel, a suffering servant. And uh, uh, from some scriptures like in Isaiah uh, chapter 53 and Psalm 22, those are very full of scriptures, of, of verses that talk about this suffering Messiah. I was going to suffer terribly. So they knew that was talking about the Messiah. You know, the rabbis did, but they couldn't put it together. Why would our Messiah come and, and be pierced? And why would he, you know, have to uh, bear iniquity for us all? They, they couldn't understand that at all. Because then they'd read other scriptures that indicated that Jesus, or I should say the Messiah, was going to be a conquering king. That's the other category. Suffering servant, conquering king. 
And in such verses, uh, uh, chapters as Isaiah 59 to 62 and Zechariah 9, you know, they just said this, the Messiah is supposed to be a conquering king. And so if he's a conquering king, uh, how can he be a suffering servant? And they just couldn't reconcile those thoughts. They really wrestled with them. After the birth of the church in the, in the book of Acts, and the church began to use, uh, they began to use actually Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, the, the, those suffering servant texts as evidence for Jesus being the Messiah, the Jews took up the position then that those prophecies actually, though they don't refer to the, to, to the Messiah, they're talking about somebody else. They don't know who they're talking about, but they, they were just certain they don't talk about the Messiah. The Jews believed that the Messiah, the prophet which Moses spoke about, would come and deliver them from Roman bondage and set up a kingdom where they would be the rulers. They would, they would be the head honchos. And this confusion ran rampant among the Jewish culture, and Jesus found it everywhere he went. Everywhere that he tried to minister, he came up against this issue that the Messiah was supposed to exalt Israel above all the other nations. It's kind of it's kind of like what we we kind of experience the same thing, not 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 uh, that uh, you know this issue of the conquering king. I tell you where we as Christians experience the same confusion is in the second coming of the Lord. There's so there's like so many different views, and there's four primary views of how to interpret the scriptures when it comes to the second coming of the Lord, and so you have all these ideas out there about how Jesus is going to come back. You know, it's, we, that's kind of the way it was in, in Israel's day. They, they, it wasn't, things weren't very clear. They just had this general idea that we're supposed to have a conquering king who's going to get us out from underneath the Roman oppression. And so any Messiah that's going to announce himself better be somebody like that. That's, that's really what Jesus was, was facing. Um, Jesus, he dealt with this issue over and over again, again with his 12 disciples. One time, just after feeding the 5,000, which probably was closer to 20,000, some of the men came to, to the disciples and they wanted, John tells us this. Matter of fact, this account of the, of the 5,000 is, is recorded by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And John makes this one extra point that the others didn't make. Um, he said that there was a group of those guys after they were fed, that they... They came to the disciples and they said, this is what we need. This, this guy's a real thing. We need to make him king. That's what John says, that they were going to try to make Jesus king. And Jesus knew what they were doing, so he escaped. He went up into the mountains to pray. He wasn't going to, he wasn't going to be forced to do anything like that, so he escaped from them. And um, when Jesus refused, Mark gives us some indication in Mark chapter 6, verse 52, it gives us an indication here that when Jesus refused to, to be that kind of Messiah, the conquering king kind, at this time, that the disciples got angry at Jesus. They got angry. I mean, they even asked him one time, you know, John and James and John asked him, said, hey, can we sit on the right and left of your throne? You know? Jesus said, oh, that, that kind of thing's not for me to decide. Those same positions have been set by the Father already. But they were thinking in their head, hey, we want to be part of your, you know, your great conquering king role, you know. And um, so they had hardened their hearts, Mark says. 
they were, um, Mark tells us that Jesus, he put them in the boat, you remember, and he, he set them, he said, he wanted them to go across the, the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus went up into the hills to pray, and the disciples were mad. They were mad, because here we had this opportunity, he had all these men behind you, and we could have started a revolt, and Jesus, he just put the kibosh on it, and he sent them across the, the lake, and they're angry, and it's starting to storm, and they're rowing against the storm, and so they're not only are they scared, are, are they afraid, but they're mad. Their hearts are hardened against Jesus, Mark says. Jesus sees them out there struggling to get across the lake in the middle of the storm, and he sees them, and you remember what he did. He started walking to them. He started walking out there. He started walking on the water. You know, and they suddenly look up, and they see him. They can see him, and they think, first of all, it's a ghost, and they're, they're, they're terrified. And what the Bible says there, it says Jesus was walking past them. He knew what was wrong. He knew that they, they were upset with him. And Peter says, Lord, if it's really you, then, you know, let me come to you. And the Lord said, come. So Peter gets out. You know what happened. He, he, uh, he starts to sink then. And as he got his eyes on the waves, Jesus rescued him. And they got in the boat. And the disciples were humbled. They were humbled. They realized that he really is the Son of God. They were struggling in their minds, like, how do we put it together? He seemed like he should be the conquering king. He should be leading us. He should be leading Israel to, to uh, you know, to be this super nation, this, you know, superpower nation. And they didn't know, so they, I believe Jesus, when the Bible says that he was walking past them, I think he would have walked past them. If they wouldn't have humbled themselves, I think he would have had to find 12 new guys. Twelve new guys to be able to do what he wanted them to do if the disciples hadn't humbled themselves. Jesus was trying to change their mindset from a political Israel to a spiritual kingdom that would circle the whole globe. They were just so focused on being number one, being superior, that Jesus said that was not the focus. The focus is becoming, a, I'm bringing the kingdom of God, a spiritual kingdom that will encircle the globe. That will go all around the world. Hmm. They thought of the Messiah as, as coming just for one group of people, the Jews, and to coming one time and somehow fulfilling two roles, although they didn't understand the suffering servant thing. They thought you just come one time and you'll, fulfill, you'll be all you're supposed to be, suffering and conquering maybe at the same time, but some had even begun to discredit and get in that suffering part. But Jesus would eventually help them to see that after he rose from the dead, that the Messiah would actually come twice, come twice, not just once, but twice, to fulfill God's full plan. Two separate roles, two separate comings. His first coming would be the suffering servant. The second time he would come would be the conquering king. Remember what Jesus said, or I should say what the angels said on that day on the Mount of Olives before Jesus was, he rose up, before, as he was going up in the clouds, I should say. Remember what the angel said? He said, men of Galilee, why do, you, why do you stand here looking up in the clouds? Don't you realize this same Jesus who you saw disappear is going to come back? Even the angels testified, trying to change the mindset of those disciples that Jesus was going to, he came once a suffering servant, he's going to come the next time as the conquering king. Amen. You know, uh, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, 
What a, what a great prophet of the Lord, Jesus said he, he was. And yet he was caught up in the confusion too to a point. And it's so good that the Bible shows us this. That even John the Baptist was kind of caught up in this confusion. You know, uh, you know he had more understanding than, than most because God had revealed to him. He, God had told him how John would know who the Messiah would be. He said, said, when you see the Holy Spirit descend on a certain person in the form of a dove... That's the special person. That would be the Lamb of God. And that's what John did. When he saw the dove descend upon Jesus, he declared him to be the Lamb of God because God had told him, said, that's who the Messiah will be when you, you see the dove descend upon a certain person. And so John understood that Jesus was the Messiah. But in his head, he couldn't figure it out. He said, uh, especially when he got arrested later on, he was preaching against Herod's fornication, his adultery. And he got arrested and put in jail. And here he is suffering in jail and he's discouraged because there's not any national revival going on. You thought, man, the Messiah came. Why, why, isn't things, why aren't things changing? And so he sent a message. Remember, he, he sent a message through his disciples. He said, uh, go ask Jesus, are you the one who's to come or should we expect someone else? Some people say John was so discouraged he was doubting Jesus. No, he wasn't doubting Jesus. It was this confusion of this suffering servant conquering king stuff. He, he, he didn't know. He said, are we going to have two messiahs? Because you're the suffering servant one and maybe another one. And, and that's what John was saying. Are you the one who's to come or should we expect someone else? Then Jesus said in Luke 7, he said this. He said, go and tell John the things you have seen and heard. That the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised. The poor have, have the gospel preached to them. And he said this, Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Jesus said, listen, tell John, it's not working out the way you think in your mind, but can you trust me? Blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Can you trust me? Even though you don't understand it all. In Matthew chapter 16, uh, there's... Matthew records where Jesus, he began, Jesus was approaching Jerusalem. It won't be too many days until he faces the cross. And he began to explain to the disciples that he must go to Jerusalem to suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he would be killed. And on the third day, he'd be raised to life. And Peter took him aside and said, Lord, he began to rebuke him, never, Lord, never. This should never happen to you. <laughs> It just, Peter doesn't understand that. He said, no, you know, we're on a roll here. We're, 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 we're trying to, uh, there's, you're, you're the conquering king. And, uh, of course, you know what Jesus said. Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, Peter. You don't have the mind uh, of the Lord concerning these things. You're just concerned about, you're, you're merely thinking in a human way. Then Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Remember on the day of, uh, on Palm Sunday? That was a great Sunday. You know, Jesus, you know, the, the people of Jerusalem, they were thinking, Hosanna to the king, save us. But they weren't thinking about a spiritual king. They were thinking about a military king. Jesus, he actually fulfilled scripture there in, uh, from, from Zach Zechariah 9.9 when he entered Jerusalem on that donkey. He was fulfilling scripture. But the people was thinking, they were thinking a military king. You know, he's going to save us. He's going to do it. He's, he's the one we've been waiting for. Jesus was coming in as a spiritual king, not a military king. 
military kings come in on horses. Spiritual kings come in on donkeys because that symbolizes peace. <laughs> and they were really disillusioned with him. Well, because he immediately went from there to the temple and he really turned the tables on those money changers then and, and uh, talked about how, how greedy they were and wicked and sinful and how that this that temple was supposed to be a place of prayer. Later that week, Later that week, he allowed himself to be arrested and tried and crucified on a cross. And the people stopped believing that he was the promised Messiah. They rejected him, Matthew 27, 22. And even after Jesus rose from the dead, after appearing to the disciples during that 40-day period after he rose from the dead, just before he was going to ascend up to heaven, the disciples asked this question in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. Listen to what they ask him. This is just before he's going to ascend up to heaven. Now, Lord, is this the time you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? They just couldn't get it out of their noggins. After everything, they just couldn't put the puzzle pieces together. You know, they're still wanting him to be that conquering king. You know, we saw that you suffered. Now, is it time for you to restore Israel? And he said, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father set on his own authority, but you will receive the power. Uh, we receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, to all the ends of the earth. He's trying to tell them, no, it's a spiritual kingdom, guys. It's going to go around the world. After the day of Pentecost, the church began to grow and it wasn't long before severe persecution, you know, broke out. Two or three years later, you know, um, after Jesus rose from the dead and Stephen was killed and uh, m martyred, Saul believed he was doing the right thing by killing or helping to kill, killing or, uh, st uh, uh, kill, kill Stephen. And he, he didn't really kill him, but he, he, uh, he, he gave his approval for it. He didn't throw any stones that we know of, but he gave his approval. And then um, he began, you know, going on a rampage, trying to stamp out the church and he was convinced that he was right about God until he met the risen Savior on the road to Damascus. And Paul did, suddenly did this 180, you know, and began spreading the gospel instead of trying to stamp it out. But you know what? He, uh, he found out that as he went around to various places trying to preach the gospel, he had this group of Jews that followed him everywhere he went and tried to, to negate the message, tried to stamp out the message tried to, to uh, deny the message that Jesus rose from the dead. <laughs> That's why Paul wrote in Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 to 24, he said, Jews demand signs. They were always saying, Jesus, give us a sign. Give us a sign. You, they, they, you couldn't give them enough signs. When you gave them a sign, they wouldn't believe it. But Paul said, Jews demand signs. Greeks, they look for wisdom. But we still preach Christ crucified it's a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Amen. Loved ones, it's the same way today. Jesus is this stumbling block to the Jews. He's not the kind of Messiah that they want. They want this Messiah to come who will make them a world power. And they're still looking for that same type of Messiah today. And that's why... They reject the Christ, the, they reject the Jesus that we understand to be the Messiah. Paul did indicate in the book of Romans that right now there seems to be a veil over the eyes of the Jewish nation. But there will come a day 
uh, that, and that veil was put there so that the, that, that the Gentiles might be more, more receptive. But there come a day when, by God's grace, that the Jews, the veil will be taken away and they'll understand that Jesus is their Messiah. But that day is not yet today. And that hope that'll help you to see that the empty tomb is still very much, the whole issue of the empty, empty, empty tomb is very much a, an alive issue around the world. That that's what makes us as Christians unique is that our Savior, our Founder, is no longer dead, but he's alive. And that is where the rub is, <laughs> right there. And particularly with the Jewish nation. Lord, as we leave today, as we uh, go out to enjoy the rest of this Lord's Day, Lord, we would ask you that this would be a day of not just usual activity, but Lord, that since we have begun this day with uh, your word, that this will be a day when we think about you frequently. It'll be a day, Lord, when we, when we think about you this afternoon and, 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 and tonight. But Lord, as we, as we rest, as we, as we try to recuperate our, our, our strength, and, and uh, Lord, as we try to honor you today, I pray that we will feel your joy knowing that Jesus died and rose again. And that, Lord, we have a firm foundation in him. We never want to take that for granted. We pray for those, Lord, who do not believe. Those, Lord, who claim that they can't comprehend or understand, Lord, the, the truth of the gospel or the, 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 uh, particularly the, the point of the resurrection. It's just too, too much for them to believe. Lord, you have a way, a key to everyone's heart. You're able to, to take uh, even the, the largest obstacles and, and knock them down. And we pray that, Lord, for not only the people that, that we know who aren't Christians, family members, Father, but also, Lord, other nations, not just, not just the Jewish nation today, but the Palestinians as well, as, the, as you know, the terrorists, Lord, as people all around the world, the Chinese, Lord, the Japanese. Lord, we pray for those specific, uh, for nations everywhere specifically, that, that Jesus would be revealed as Messiah, that you would help your workers, your missionaries, to, to find ways to exalt Christ. Lord, we know that... Um, there will come a day when you will return and you will be that conquering king. And we pray, Father, that that day will come quickly. Lord, we long for it. We long for you to return. We pray that you will find us faithful, that you will find us to be a bride, Lord, with radiant garments on, that we will, we will be abiding in your holiness, that we will be, Lord, we will not be a compromising in our lives with, with sin or with any ungodliness, but that we'll be doing all we know to do to stay surrendered to you, trusting in your grace. You're the one who makes all the difference, Lord, in all things. So we pray these things today in Jesus' name, and we pray it again that we might, we might find you to be more and more glorious and good. Amen. Amen. Well, let's stand together. And again, uh, if you have any questions about any of these things, feel free to uh, ask me and we can, we can talk them over more. <laughs>